the realist in me kind of says that it, it may not be as, uh, as as transformative as we'd hope in terms of say how people you know so how we engage as a society with, with each other so um, I, I think the same problems that we had before the pandemic are going to be there afterwards Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Here, we interview experts and leaders participating in this great energy transition of a zero carbon future by 2050. We engage in topics that shed light on the current state of the world, but we also consider longer term trends that affect how and when we build a sustainable and equitable energy system. You can contact us with feedback or suggestions by Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on the MyEnergy2050 LinkedIn profile. Please follow us on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit, please share it on social media. Today's guest is Dr. Brefni Lennon, a senior postdoctoral researcher in the Cleaner Production Promotion Unit at University College Cork. He is a human geographer researching the socio-economic dimensions to climate change and the energy transition. In this episode, we delve into the topic of researching the social dimension of our energy transition. We discuss both the research process itself and also how research sheds light on the plight of people regardless of their socio-economic background. Is someone who burns coal for heat damaging the environment as much as someone flying to Mexico for their vacation? We take on some tricky structural questions around agency and power relations. Don't be scared. We do walk you through it. This means we look at why people are forced to use cars and the the status that a bicycle transmits in different contexts. For example, is the hipster bicycle as fashionable as a Lamborghini? In the past, I've had this discussion with my son, and he doesn't think so. But Brefni buys into this line of thinking. We also discuss the EU's Green Deal and how this attempts to empower citizens to build a more sustainable energy system. And now for this episode of My Energy 2050. Thank you very much for for coming on the podcast, My Energy 2050. You have a lot of different... Uh, publications looking at the energy transition and very much from a social science perspective. And that's why I wanted to, to have you on because you have this broad view of society it, being involved in the, and the importance of society being involved in the energy transition. Uh, but my first question for you is, can you uh, describe your background actually and how did you end up at the Environmental Research Institute at University of College Cork? No, thank you, and thank you for inviting me uh, to, to talk today. Yeah, um, I suppose I'm a geographer uh, by background, so um, I'm very much, uh, you know, the idea of maps and space and, you know, people's relationship with the environment, they were, um, they, they were very kind of informative for me. Um, so we were, uh, one of, I, my, my PhD research looked at uh, the renewable energy so renewable energy policy in Europe, and it was looking at how uh, that translates from the supranational to the national down to the local, and then how uh, actions at the local level then actually feed back up and uh, impact on those supranational policies. So um, we were looking at... And what, sorry, uh, what, what year were, did you do this? Huh? Uh, oh, this was, uh, I finished in uh, 2012. So um, I was looking at uh, the period there, sort of saying in the, in the noughties, 
and uh, up to 2012. So it was the when you know particularly uh, renewable energy policy itself was looking at uh, wind energy as a uh, in the European level that, that that was the it was the big focus and um, we were trying to like you know looking at unpicking. Uh, some of the uh, the processes and what happened there and how people reacted because you know I, very much similar to what's happening today um you have uh, you know people have a very you know positive view of renewable energy and uh, yeah we, ideally we want to have this carbon uh, neutral economy and we want to ha- you know we want to tackle climate change but then it's you know when it comes to the the local level and what actually is happening and i think a lot of the time the the debates were informed by nimby you know the, that it was nimbyism and all of this and it was very dismissive of actual genuine local concerns that people had um and they were not necessarily around the technology per se or the actual the siting of the turbines um it could be other factors but also those as well so there was there was all of that kind of you know feeding into into my research so you were one of the early pioneers, I would say, in connecting the, the, the social, the society with the technology and the energy transition then. Um, well, I, I say I was definitely informed by, uh, by others. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 I know. But at, but at this time, it was, I would say in the social sciences, even if we think about mm-hmm. like energy uh, journals and publications, it was kind of beginning to emerge at this time. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think like Sovacool and others were, uh, you know, talking about this, saying that it was a dearth of, um, uh, you know, uh, social science um, related research around energy and that, you know, there was a kind of a call for that. So I suppose I was one of the one of those uh, PhDs that did actually engage in that uh, area. So it was, yeah, yeah, it was it was it was interesting and it it kind of raised a lot of questions, I think, and, you know, answered I raised more questions than they answered, but it was, it was, it was, it was a fascinating work. No, no, no. I, I understand, right? Because if you're new in this area and there's not a lot of publications out there justifying your own research, yeah. uh, when the research is not out there, yeah. then it, it, it becomes that much more work to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You have, you have to kind of, um, you know, you, you really have to kind of justify, uh, your approaches and how you're taking, uh, you know, um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the ideas that you're engaging with and all of that as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and and how did how, so? How did you end up at the University of College Cork then? So, um, how did I'll, this come about? Yeah, I was uh, well. I did my. Uh, I was in the Department of Geography in UCC, um, and that's where I did the the PhD. And then um, a position came up in uh, the Cleaner Production Promotion Unit, which is a, it's an uh, it's part it's a research group within the uh, ERI within the Environmental Research Institute, and it's. Um, it's very much a, it's a multi multidisciplinary team uh, led by my colleague uh, Dr. John, uh, Dr. Niall Dunphy, and it's looking at uh, say the people's relationship with energy. So it's affiliated with the School of Engineering and the ERI. Uh, so it's a kind of a it's a it's very much a, a multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary uh, research unit. So it was it's a it's, it's a very um, it's in a very interesting space to work in because it's uh, you've got a lot of ideas and I think that may be reflected in uh, some of the writings that we have co-produced together. Um, no, no, absolutely. This is why uh, I think it attracted me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's quite broad in scope, but but very interesting. And the I would say the co-authorship is reflected in the quality of the mm-hmm. the research in there. So it's yeah. it's it's very good, very focused. 
analysis, mm-hmm. both of the literature and of, of what, what people are actually doing in real life in the communities that you, you bring in. Yeah, no, we're very lucky with the, the colleagues we have. For, uh, there's a good um, there's a good mix there and there's like there, there can be uh, challenging debates and like, you know, because we're coming from dis- different disciplines, uh, sometimes, uh, again, the idea of language is, uh, you know, important that, you know, we unpick our, uh, our own perspectives and, you know, uh, sometimes the terminologies can sound conflicting but are actually we're, we're going in the right direction uh, or the same direction so there would be quite you know kind of good robust uh, debates um around some of the themes that we were kind of discussing while writing the papers as well you know it's great yeah. so we'll, i'll have all these links at least at least to your profile and then to some of the other studies as well great stuff, and i you. think that brings us to the entrust project mm-hmm. which we began to, to talk briefly about I was wondering can you can you provide a bit of a background to this because this is where the the idea and the concept of energy citizenship is explored and maybe maybe provide a background to the whole Entrust project and then maybe into your specific work on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, well, the Entrust came out of a, a research application that uh, uh, Dr. Nal Dunphy did um, for Horizon 2020 project. And um, it was looking at the the idea of um, how people respond or understand energy and the energy system. So um, very much, you know, the the uh, the energy infrastructure that we have all around us is, is very ubiquitous. We we can we barely notice it. So it's kind of trying to unpick those uh, you know those understandings and those relationships, and very much from a bottom up um, approach. So uh, we were um, I was. That's actually it was for the Entrust project that I joined uh, the CPPU as well, and uh, the ERI. And it was a we were looking, sort of we were basically very much going in from a, um, you know that the the people we were talking to are the uh, experts in their own uh, lived experiences. So it was uh, taking a very intersectional approach. Um, there was no uh, you know right answer. We weren't being experts telling them this is the solutions or these are the you know uh, these are the problems. Like we were very much going in saying like oh, what problems have you got or you know uh, how do you understand energy and I mean it, it, it generated some kind of interesting uh, discussions and you know in the communities that we engaged with and it um, there was a, so you know some some unexpected things as well you know and it's it's it was it was good it was very uh, it was a very dynamic uh, project and it. It kind of generated a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, say, kind of academic and intellectual discussions amongst the research team as well. You know, we kind of we had a uh, we had a, a, a broad range of partners kind of from across Europe, and it was uh, that was that was very good as well. You know, it kind of it stimulated uh, debate, stimulated kind of, you know, and again, it was perspectives, and it kind of reflected in many ways the multidisciplinary team that we have. That was also reflected in the project because we were we were working with SMEs, we were working in local communities that had very different experiences. You know, somewhere, um, uh, you know, uh, there was an eco village in um, Paris. It was described as an eco village, but it was you know quite a wealthy suburb of in Paris, and that was, uh, you know, their experiences compared to say um, we were working in Secondigliano in in, um, in Naples, and we were looking there as well, like you know, sort of how. Um, uh, you know the experiences that they have, and you know, and 
you know, again, there's a spectrum of experience, and I think that was uh, that that kind of came out in the in the research as well. And and part part of the outcome was uh, this publication on the Delphi methodology. That's right. That's right. Yes. And can you maybe explain your experience on using the Delphi method? Yeah, that was um, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Alexandra Revesh, and she um, she like, we co-produced that paper there. Uh, she led it there on, uh, and it was looking at the methodologies, and it was one of the the, the approach we took for Entrust was a mixed methods approach. So there was a kind of a combination. We were trying to kind of combine the best of, or, you know, as much as we could, I can make a strong, robust uh, research methodology using qualitative and quantitative methods. So um, one of the, the Delphi approach was used to, to kind of bring in the voices of experts as well and kind of have them uh, discuss some of the other, you know, sort of discuss the, the themes that were coming out of the discussions that they were having in, in the communities themselves. So it was very much kind of like an, a, a very iterative uh, approach. And, um, and as I say, one of the, one of the results was the, the, the Delphi uh, paper as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, re- I really liked it. It was both, I mean, for um, a discussion on methodology and the importance of bringing together both experts mm-hmm. and then just people, you know, average people and then weighing them and how they interact. I, I thought it was a really good yeah. paper on that. It's not, Basically, first, it's not boring. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. I, I love I love articles on methodology, anyways. Yeah. But sometimes, right, you just need something from it to insert someplace else. So, it, but it was actually interesting and gave good examples. So great. So this is why I, I, I liked it. So. Can we maybe maybe I'd like to talk about maybe some current events and basically the whole world is changing, right? Yeah. And and I think based on your background and your research. And I would say a strong understanding of the energy transition and the role that society plays is now we have this pandemic. Um, and how do we how do we transition? Maybe it, we'll take it from a researcher point of view. How do we transition as researchers and adapt our methods to social distancing and, and everything is, is kind of disrupted now? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I suppose I, th- I one part of me was said to say that it's not going to last forever. So, I mean, we will adapt. And, uh, you know, um, I think. Uh, I suppose the optimist in me would like to see a transformative change coming from the pandemic, um, uh, so there'd at least be some positives from it. Um, the uh, the realist in me kind of says that it it may not be as uh, as as transformative as you'd hope in terms of say how people you know so how we engage as a society with with each other. So um, I, I think the same problems that we had before the pandemic are going to be there afterwards. Um, in terms of methodology, uh, as researchers, I mean, the reliance on technology, I think, will be emphasized a lot more. Um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, that, that, say, for example, smartphones, uh, the fact that we're having a conversation over uh, using technology now rather than actually meeting in person. Uh, I mean, there are ways to uh, that we will devise to kind of overcome some of the problems. They won't solve every problem, but I think we're... we're um, we have the tools, I think, at least uh, that we can kind of at least meet some of the challenges that are uh, you know facing us going forward. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you think people are going to have their voices heard more? Um, I mean, one way, well, we can see, say, protests in the U.S. Mm. and so protests are, are happening. But yeah. but when we talk about the climate change, energy transition, protests against coal fired power plants, yeah. all these things are based on mobilizing people. 
how 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 do we mobilize people now or how will groups mobilize people now yeah it's um well it's actually i'm going to plug some current research that we're doing uh, it's a sustainable energy authority of ireland funded project um energy policies and we're looking at how uh, you know the, how people mobilize uh, either for or against uh, energy projects um and kind of how that then relates to the energy transition so um it's very much a um it's an ongoing project so we're we're still in the midst of the research and the the analysis but um it's like the i think the problem that a lot of the discourse sometimes has is that uh, you know that we have around um change and all of that is that we kind of tend to kind of focus on uh, say individual or group actions rather than the systemic changes that are needed and i think the systemic changes that are uh, you know they're they're the elephant in the room that are not being um, addressed as much um, I mean, I think, you know, the example you, you give there about the uh, protests in the US with Black Lives Matter, I mean, you know, uh, people came out onto the streets uh, to protest uh, because they felt very strongly about uh, the issues. Uh, but those issues haven't gone away. So, you know, the mobilization itself is only one part of the process. And I think it's uh, it, it's kind of a, it's important for academics and researchers as well. And, uh, you know, the the uh, the actors within the system to actually kind of recognize that the change needs to, to occur and, and occur quite quickly. I think that's, mm-hmm. yeah. Are there other specific case studies you're looking at there in Ireland? I mean, the, uh, at least the funding. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're looking at two case studies in Ireland and we have uh, one in Austria. And the two case studies in Ireland were very much in, um, it. they kind of engendered a very uh, negative reaction uh, with the community, the proposed projects that were there. Um, and they and they have quite interesting geographic and sociocultural, socio economic and socio political um, context to those yeah. as well. So there's you know and it's uh, you know the um, how do you say the they're both they're both historical examples. So they were you know they were quite um, informative in how uh, people say. Um, mobilized uh, against a particular proposal those two particular proposals for example um where and what, what, what kind of projects were they yeah there were one was uh, the car gas uh, field uh, there was a pipeline proposed there from uh, it was during the uh, again during the noughties um the 2000s and it was looking there uh, it very much like there was a um I suppose the the, 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 ta- the view that was taken by those developing the project was very much in, in a traditional role, um, and the the you know the the concerns, the, the the worries of the local people weren't really factored into the planning or the the implementation of the project. So it it was it it, it created a, a lot of controversy and it was quite you know it and it actually in in, in a way informed a lot of um, thinking post uh, the project as well in terms of how you know both the government uh, reacted say for example national government um, uh, and the state and how that kind of you know sort of influ- you know um, involves itself in the, uh, these types of infrastructural projects so there was you know there was a lot of um, a lot of good things so the gas pipeline for example that wasn't built uh, it was yes yeah, it was it was built it in was. the end um, I but there was a um, how do you say uh, one of the one of the original pipeline that was proposed was in a more dangerous uh, area and it was like there was local knowledges there that were saying like you know if you build it there you're going to have you know uh, significant problems um and it's going to cause danger to the local community so where it was eventually put in it was still 
uh, a lot of people who were um, was it, you know, in the community that weren't uh, happy with the development, um, it still went ahead. So, uh, but it, 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 what, they did manage to make it a safer project uh, from those protests. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, there was a, the other uh, the other project in Ireland. Then is looking at um, uh, it was a pylon plan um, for uh, basic. Um, it was a four hundred uh, kilovolts uh, py- uh, pylon uh, plan for running from Cork to uh, Kildare, and it was going through a, a number of counties with um, you know sort of say that would have had a, sif- a different. Um, uh, say socio-demographic backgrounds. Uh, there was uh, uh, they again. They kind of presented kind of an interesting difference in that they were uh, a lot closer to the uh, uh, say uh, to Dublin. So you had a their connection to the seat of power was closer, whereas Carb was quite on the periphery, um, and so it was more difficult for those mobilising to engage with uh, the centres of power uh, around Dublin, say. So that, you know, so it kind of, you know, there was an interesting uh, difference there between the two. How were the, and how did you kind of break apart the power dynamics? Well, it's, it's kind of, uh, with the discussions we were talking, you know, we, we, talking, we were talking to the locals and we had, you know, we've, we've been doing a lot of desk-based research as well. And, uh, you know, there would have been, it was, it was actually, it was an interesting one. The, as, with Carob, um, there was one of the participants there um, received the, the Goldman uh, Environmental Prize as well um, around at the time, uh, which, you know, uh, it kind of, it highlights uh, environmental um, activists in the area and uh, uh, based in California. And they were, you know, they, uh, they recognized the importance of CARB at the time. And I think uh, there was, so there was a lot of, you know, uh, it was one of the, uh, one of the kind of, um, it was a case study, I think that sort of, it generated a lot of media uh, online as well. There was a, you know, a website for it, stuff like that. So there was a lot of debate, I, I remember at, at the time and uh, subsequently as well. So, you know, it's, it, it, was, it was one of the, um, I suppose, what would you call it, a, a kind of a new, a new protest in a lot of ways in that it was, you know, it wasn't just, you know, walking the streets. It was, um, it was online, it was engaging in, with media. There was all of those aspects as well. So they were able to uh, elevate the profile. They, uh, they were. Now they struggled. The they did struggle, but they, uh-huh. they were able to elevate it. And I think um, it did, I mean, it engaged um, a lot of different um, sections of society as well. So you had say musicians you had there was documentary movies made of of the, of the protest there was all of these things kind of you know came into it as well and it, it did kind of you know it, it it mobilized groupings within society you know within our society that maybe had been a little bit dormant uh, for a while so and, and did that project go ahead or was it cancelled uh, with the pylon project uh, that was yeah. um that was cancelled in the end as well actually so it was oh, uh, oh. they 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 changed the 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 approach they were going to take, so yeah, that didn't go ahead in the end. Uh-huh. And then, say the 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 Austrian example that we're looking at, uh, that was a more positive experience. Uh, solar panel, uh, for a solar project where they were looking at, so it's a local community, go- local government municipality there in uh, Austria were looking at developing a more inclusive way of. Of, of using the the facilities that they had already, so the you know the, the public buildings that they had that they you know they, they developed solar uh, solar arrays on those buildings, but they also then created a facility whereby uh, local people could also invest, even if they had a small amount of money, because uh, like say the the Anglo American experience and which 
happens in Ireland too is that you know you need deep pockets to uh, to make any sort of investment. Um, whereas uh, the Austrian example was a little bit different. And if you had you know if you had a hundred euro, you could invest and get some money back, uh, or if you had a hundred thousand. So it it was more um, it was more equitable in a lot of ways. So and, and it was more positively received as a result. So you know it was it's, it's been an interesting one as well. You said at the beginning, uh, kind of looking at the systemic change, mm. uh, systemic shift, and what what do these case studies then kind of demonstrate over uh, how, how to change the system as a whole? Well, I, I suppose if you look at, uh, I mean, uh, again, when we talk about systems as well, I mean, it can be quite an amorphous yeah. term, and I think, uh, but I think uh, it does. What they demonstrate, I think, is that to tr- the traditional approaches to community engagement don't work. Like you know, and it haven't worked. And while in previous energy transitions, that was fine because people didn't have a voice, so people just kind of got had, had to kind of get on with whatever experience it was, whether it was a, you know, coal-fired power station or a, a dam was imposed in their area. People had to leave their villages or towns or whatever, or, you know, or their uh, land, and to facilitate that um, uh, that the the dam, say for example. Whereas, uh, because people are more engaged now, and there's also, I think, I think one of the things that the um, the uh, that the the push on for um, wind power in the 2000s has kind of it's built up a body of people as well uh, in societies now that um, you know are experienced in protesting and uh, have a like a um, an understanding of the processes and understand the systems that are there. So, like you know, from that level like they're not uh, they're they're there and they're not going away and they're going to be you know you know actively engaged and i think you know uh, for systemic actors like you know uh, say the state uh, energy incumbents and all that there does need to be a more an emphasis on participatory engagement and, and not just kind of you know the tokenistic um you know we're informing you and you know this is what's going to happen and we're the experts thanks very much now we're going to get on with it how, you know? how, how, how would you take the approach of the maybe we'll say large corporations i i could see it coming from them and I, i've heard it before but i'm not quite sure where but you know these are if there's a protest against an uh some kind of project that these protesters are from outside the community they're agitators uh, and they're you know getting the local people up against, but but they have this experience of protesting that you that you draw. On. Yeah, how, how can this play out maybe at the local level? Or I mean, there's two sides on that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. and it's um, and like I think from the discussions I had with the local people, say in Carb, for example, um, they were very mindful of that it was their protest. It wasn't you know outside people and. A lot of, that can be a strategy. They were they were presenting that as a, that, that that could be a strategy on the part of those promoting the project. That it was you know that it's local people you know it's outside people that are influencing this, and they were very mindful of that. So I mean I think uh, one of the things I think that Entrust uh, the Entrust project demonstrated to us is that um, people are far more aware of. The situations that you know impact their lives than we would often give them credit for, um, or that are, that they are giving credit for, and I think that scenario, I think, in so that that presentation of you know outside protests, what yes, while it does happen, there's an element of the nimbyism, nimbyist kind of you know dismissive dismission, genuine local concerns. So I think that you know that we have to be kind of careful, I suppose. And again, it's all it's all about that, uh, language and how and presentation and uh, like you know for local people, a lot of the time their access to 
the narrative, you know, the, the popular discourse is very limited. Um, whereas, you know, say energy incumbents and, and the like do have considerable resources and access to existing uh, media and uh, everything else that can, you know, that, that can drive those narratives. So but when you when you actually talk to local people and unpick some of that, like, I mean, they like they were very, very aware of that. And they were very much, no, this is our this is our protest and we're not you know, sort of we will take the information that, you know, if you have a experience or information that, that can inform us, we'll take that on board. But this is very much our own, we, you know. And they try to keep it yeah. local and, and absolutely have, yeah. have that side of local. And then when you speak about the energy narrative or the narrative that companies have mm-hmm. or, or even government officials may have that push this, they can still tap into this. I'm not saying it's the case there, but with pylons or big gas pipelines, even right. We need we need this for the energy transition. Yeah. So so whatever the the uh, infrastructure that's being built can still be say, well, yeah, it's not a coal fired power plant, but but we are using this mm-hmm. for the energy transition to build a clean future. Like that's ties into the narrative. Yeah. But you're kind of uncovering that, uh, like the example in Austria, maybe a a more effective governance way Mm -hmm. or way that governments should operate is by this more participatory process. Absolutely, yes. You know, and it's 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 something I think that's becoming more evident. I think as you know, as the research is being developed, it's there's a. uh, I think, and and I think it brings it into the idea of energy citizenship as well. That you know. you uh, as part of being a citizen you have rights and responsibilities but you also have say intersecting access or levels of access to power so not every citizen is created equal let's put it that way and it's the same idea with uh, you know uh, energy consumers and uh, you know the the idea that like you know the fact the idea even of being a consumer and having agency or power is quite ludicrous because you're you're only given a, a choice a or choice b of the same type of product that's created in the same area, you know, is, is, you know, using the same manufacturing materials and infrastructures and everything else. So it's it's not necessarily, I, I suppose, a lot of the time that we have choice is a big thing, and I think that's that's one thing that's always been removed from the, a lot of the discussions. I mean, like you know, like the people that we were speaking to in Carb, say for example, like they're not afraid, they're, they weren't uh, against gas per se. I mean, like they were saying, like no, like I mean, we're we're modern people we use gas you know i mean we uh, of course we want you know the benefits of modern existence but uh, we don't want to endanger our community by uh, having a pipeline that would that has that could potentially explode amongst the, the the houses and dwellings that we have here you know so it was you know th- these are the issues that were being asked and they were you know being raised by the community and the answers that they got weren't um, satisfactory. So, you know, the, that the idea of having a participatory engagement, it does need to take on board the concerns and often valid, you know, perspectives of no, not all. Like, as I say, not every, like so there, there, uh, there's not always a, a valid reason against something. But like I mean, but the majority of cases they are, and you know, and people generally speaking are, you know, quite rational and engaged in a lot of ways and how they so and especially in how you know things affect their lives so you know it's oh you kind of you kind of set up a, a, a let's say a dialectic 
uh, argument position in a sense. It, it's interesting because in a sense we've been talking about supply side things, mm. so supply side uh, infrastructure projects. And then when we talk about agency of people, and I like what you said about not everyone's created equal yeah. in, in a sense, right? Or yeah. there's no, uh, we could say even consumers themselves are not quite equal. So, so, and that brings us maybe, I think if we can think about the demand side mm. uh, of it and energy efficiency projects, the, the how people live, yeah. right? And who can afford not just... Uh, do you buy solar elect electricity from solar plants or wind? Do you choose the more expensive supplier to get your green energy? Mm -hmm. But just as a consumer yourself and how you're essentially not or you're conserving or trying to use as little energy as possible. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's those I'm kind of getting us towards energy poverty in, in a sense yeah. here. From, from your experiences, uh, does energy poverty play out in these communities or is it addressed yeah. rather than just supply side? Well, yeah, no, indeed. It's, um, and it's an interesting one because I think the, um, like, say, when you, when you talk to people about, um, you know, very much when they live their lives, energy, it, like, we're not thinking about it in terms of, okay, you know, uh, I suppose a lot of discussions that we have are quite middle class in how we um, how we frame the world, and it's very much framed in that sense. You know, say if I go and buy a new uh, piece of electrical equipment, I'm looking at the whether it's an A rated or a B rated, or you know what, what's the rating on it, and um, so I'm getting efficiency. But that and I feel good about that. But then that ignores the the, the huge amount of carbon that has gone into creating that new product, rather than you re you know kind of continuing on and fixing maybe the old products that I had. So there's all of these kind of, you know, questions are kind of do need to be asked. I think one of, we did a kind of an exercise where we had, um, uh, we had different scenarios where you're like a working class individual who, uh, you know, burns coal, has a coal fire. And then we had a middle class person who eats goji berries and, you know, does Pilates and all of that, but then flies to California, like, you know, twice a year, this type of thing. So it was looking at, the, you know, the whole, uh, you know, whose carbon footprint is bigger? You know what I mean? Uh, you know, when you say, when you're coal, okay, oh, oh my right. God, this is, you know, it's awful. Like, you know I mean? It's, uh, yeah. um, but then, you know, when you talk about the, you know, how much uh, carbon is used in, uh, you know, uh, aviation, it's it, it skews it back so i mean even though we might think of our lifestyles as being you know positive and you know carbon more carbon neutral and we're doing our best we kind of we often ignore the other systemic you know streams that are kind of carbon that are coming in to create that lifestyle you know and uh, that's uh, that's something i think we need to address a bit more um, yeah i love that sorry I, I just want to unpack that a bit more i love that example of essentially someone that's lower in income yeah. and they have to burn coal yeah. because I, I'm just assuming not that a rich person couldn't or a higher income person burn coal, yeah. but, but in the sense they're not able to afford a, a gas boiler or redo their whole uh, heating system, but rather they just have to use coal to heat their home but at the same time producing huge amounts of uh, carbon, monox carbon dioxide yeah. and just everything, right? That's really bad for your lungs. But at the same time yeah, middle class family or upper middle class flying yeah. to Greece, right? Absolutely, Spain yeah. on their vacation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is the this is the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it was brought home to us on the Entrust Project as well, because we had, it was an example that one of the participants gave where there was a, a community in the UK and they had switched from a traditional, it was, I think it was, a, a, it was an oil fired heating system it was a it was a tower block and it was an oil fired heating system and they switched over to um a more renewable uh, sources but whereas before 
with the old system, uh, occupants were able to, uh, you know, they paid a fixed rate and then that was it. So they were able to say, they were able to budget their the rest of their income, uh, you know, or their outgoings for the rest of the week. So they were like, you know, so they had X amount for heating. Okay, that's great. I can like, you know, I can live off this bit. Whereas with the, when they put in the renewable energy um, uh, heating system, they changed the, the way then as well that, that people were actually charged. So they were charged by a per use basis. And then because of the inefficiencies in the building that you know, was, was built in the 60s, that type of thing, people weren't actually able to afford to then heat their home anymore because the, the cost of heating became so high. So uh, people were actively having to think about whether do I pay for shopping this week or do I pay for heating? You know, there was, there was these really, you know, significant imp- uh, impacts on people's lives that, you know, um, at, at just a kind of a, not a whim, but, you know, a kind of a, a, a slight de- a decision that was made that you wouldn't maybe um, see as huge, had a massive impact then on people's lives. Like, I mean, uh, one person described a resident coming in to a, it was a, a food bank and they had potatoes and they had, uh, you know, um, vegetables and all of that there. And the man came in, like, you know, the, the young man came in and he says, I, you know, I, I can't use these, you know, because he couldn't actually, he didn't have the, the gas meter to actually cook the potatoes and the vegetables. So, uh, and people were actually kind of like, you know, scratching their head going like, I mean, why is he so, you know, like, you know, because he's getting agitated and he's saying like, look, I can't, I, I can't use these. And they said, well, you know, because you can't actually afford to actually cook them. So there's, you know, there's these issues that, know. you know, that we don't always, that we do need to unpack, I think, as well and unpick. And, you know, and as policymakers or as researchers in uh, how policy impacts, I think they, those, those type of factors are very important. Because that, that, I would say that gets lost in the debate and the discussion about energy transition and what kind of technologies we use. Mm. Because I think... Okay, from a technical point of view, yes, everyone should change to solar and wind, yeah. hot water production, right? Like, so this is the the choice, and we shouldn't use gas. Mm-hmm. I see, especially in the UK, a lot of discussion in the Netherlands moving to like electric heating yeah. uh, and getting getting rid of gas. But at the same time, at a very human level, mm-hmm. consumer, we can call them consumers, but it's it's even more than that, right? Yeah. Just a, it's another human being how do they actually live and what can they afford? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very, ba- and, and not just that they're s- trapped or they're caught with this previous resource or technology, yeah. but actually it fits towards their finances as well, and their, their economic position that they have. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, that's it. And I think it's like, you know, you know I, I think the, the intersectionality, I think, um, that was a, a very much informed uh, and continues to inform our research and how, you know, that we have very intersectional experiences um, as a, as a white uh, middle-class male, you know what I mean? Um, yes, you know, both we, of us, yeah, yes. We do own our privilege, you know what I mean? And like, uh, we must acknowledge that. And I think it's, you know, uh, but then say, you know, we, we do have, um, and, and that changes those intersectional power relations that we experience in life change over the course of our lives as well. So, you know, I mean, while, uh, say, you know, we have relative privilege now, we might have less later on when we're maybe, say, um, older and have uh, infirmities or something that, you know, to kind of to deal with. So, you know, our, our, our um, the power does change, you know what I mean? And, the, and those experiences and those relationships change um, and can change on a daily basis. So I think it's just to kind of to be mindful of that. I think as policymakers, I think that's one of the things that um, does need to um, be brought in, I think, as we transition, because it, at the moment, like the emphasis has been on, 
you know, renewable energy, and I'm all for renewable energy. Uh, don't get me wrong, yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it's it's how that renewable energy is then distributed, you know, and shared, and you know, and what rights people have, and what you know, access to resources people have of that energy, because all that's really changing is the type of energy and the technology, not the actual, you know, the social and political uh, inequalities that are that continue to be there. So, you know, I think mm-hmm. that's that's something I think that we need to unpack a bit more, I think, in terms of, you know, um, as we go forward. Shift a little bit, but not too far. I yeah. just have to look it up. The, um, uh, the article about bicycles and bicycle sharings, yeah. sharing, but you bring in the uh, Javan's uh, paradox, mm. and maybe I think this kind of goes along with it. I was wondering if you could expand on that, what that actually means, yeah. as it ties into the society and type of technology we use. Absolutely, and I think it's just the whole, uh, the idea that we have, um, even, and, you know, as we power down, you know, in terms of the the devices we use using le- needing less electricity or less less energy to, to to operate we're creating more of them so how do we then you know uh, the, the paradox then being that we actually uh, as a society consume more so and i think that, that that links into wider discussions on consumption in general because i mean the late capitalist model we have you know does kind of it, it valorizes consumption and you know we have that paradox of how you know when is enough to have a good life you know what i mean and uh, the idea of sufficiency and all of these things like you know you know do we need to have the latest x y and z to uh, you know feel good about ourselves you know those type of things and you know and then if we if we do need that we do have to acknowledge the the massive stream of carbon and inequalities and injustices and everything else that have gone into creating that particular technology, whether it's a smartphone and rare earth, you know, exploitation mm-hmm. that you have in uh, Central Africa or, you know, blood diamonds or whatever it is. I mean, all of those things are, you know, like they're, they're very real and they have very real consequences. And I think a lot of the time we're, we're kind of shield from that. And I think that, but to get back to the, the paradox is that, you know, we, we do valorize consumption, but at the same time, we're kind of, you know, uh, tut-tutting pe- uh, individuals for consuming, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a strange one. Uh, do you think, especially with the current, I don't know, just change in, in, in life and that bicycles and how cities are designed and used now are, are yeah. at a, a really important turning point Yeah, absolutely. that, that um, we actually see some more, I don't want to say radical change, but accelerated change within the urban environment? Yeah, but urban and rural. I mean, I mean, if you go back to the 1950s, uh, say in Ireland, I mean, uh, bicycles were a big mode of transport for people, you know, like uh, it's and it's not um, it was the planners who were devi- you know, devising the infrastructure and uh, not blaming planners like, you know, exclusively. It was just, it was, you know, it was, the, it, was the, it was the ideas that um, informed uh, you know how they devised uh, the infrastructures. It was a conscious effort to accommodate cars rather than bicycles. I think there is a shift back towards you know a, a kind of a cycling as a kind of a as a as a healthier mode of transport. I mean, and, and, and a way of revitalizing our cities as well. You know, in particular. But as again, none of, nothing is certain. I think that's the I think that's one of the things that we have to uh, kind of dismiss is that you know we have this. There's a very, I think, there's a very. The undercurrent we have is a kind of a neoliberal idea of, you know, that you cannot change with, you know, market forces. You cannot, you know, kind of tamper with these things. These are sacrosanct. These are the, and that's not true. I mean, you know, like the COVID-19 <laughs> right. has just shown, like, you know, that it's, uh, what was it, that, you know, governments can, uh, you know, turn on a penny, you know what I mean, if if they recognize yes. the dangers. So, you know, and I think, um, 
I think, we're, you know, uh, but we do get kind of, we get locked into cycles and we get locked into kind of life cycles and sort of how, you know, you know, we need a car to get to work or we need a car to kind of, you know, get our shopping or whatever. Whereas, uh, you know, that's not necessarily the case, you know, and, and I'm all for cycling as well. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great way to get around. I, I, I like how you brought in the infrastructure, essentially uh, for the, I don't say urban planners, the planners, mm were built for the car and yeah. it's the infrastructure and, and actually similar in, in Hungary here, if you get out to the countryside, to the villages and towns, I mean, this is how people get to work. Yeah. This is how people go to the, the pub, yeah. essentially. Like all these people are riding bicycles and it, and in one, in one sense, maybe the reason that it's changed in Ireland, but it's also a, a mode of transport because people can't afford cars. Yeah. Or they don't live so far away, so they just have a bicycle. Mm -hmm. So there's other uh, economic financial reasons why bicycles are, are popular in certain areas as well. So it's not just yeah. uh, the hipster riding <laughs> their bike through, through the town, right? Yeah, but, but, but really, uh, it's also a question of poverty and, and yeah. what people can afford and, and having this bicycle or, or a scooter, mm -hmm. or electric scooter. So all these other modes of transport uh, besides the car for getting around. Absolutely. But I think, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, having a bicycle is a sign of poverty when you have a system that's de designed for cars. Do you know what I mean? When If you have a system, mm -hmm. uh, an infrastructure designed for bicycles, then that badge or that symbol of poverty is no longer there, you know? So I think there's, uh, I mean, I think in the 1950s and 60s, I think uh, and the Netherlands were uh, kind of talking about banning bicycles from cities altogether. And then like, you know, in the 70s, they switched that around. And, you know, there was a huge pushback saying, people saying, like, oh, we're not Southern European. Like, why do we want cafes in our streets? Like, you know I mean? You know, we need cars. That's what they're for. And and look at Holland today, you know what I mean? Our Netherlands today, it's very much, you know, it's a, it's a cycling capital of Europe, you know, in a lot of ways. So yes. it's, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's a, I think it's about challenging uh, established norms and mindsets and I think just you know sort of saying, and questioning why why is that you know uh, why is that essential why is that um, the way it is you know I think that's um, that's important I think for uh, for all of us you know to, mm -hmm. to question mm -hmm. and and um, <clears throat> I'll move to maybe our last category here about teaching mm -hmm. and kind of more more broadly about this and how do, how do we communicate, I would say, as educators about how these transitions can happen? I mean, one, one, one example, we're living in this radical change period, I would say, mm -hmm. at, at the moment. But, but how, how do we teach about this energy transition? And it's not just, it's not just solar, it's not just wind or wave power. This is uh, often my students think of. But actually, it's much more these fundamental social issues that, that we have to look at when we look at the energy sector, how, how do you communicate this yeah. in your classes? Um, I think the uh, talking about individual experiences, uh, you know, to, to illustrate uh, how, uh, you know, a, a policy decision can impact uh, those type of, I think it's, it's, it's important in that sense, I think, to get get students, you know, to kind of like, to help students think about, you know, the consequences of particular policies, because I think a lot of the time, uh, you know, in, in terms of any writing that, you know, we do or something, it's it's very much, we kind of try to re we remove some of the essentialism that's in the experiences that, you know, people have. And I think that can then kind of remove some of the the very real, you know, experiences of people. And I think that's, so I think it's, it's, it's important, I think, to kind of 
to also you know to kind of help students reflect on their own transition. I mean, like very much. I mean, the students when they're coming into a, into the university, they're they're engaged in a transition themselves. You know, I mean, they're transitioning from secondary school, secondary level education to uh, third level. They're you know very often going out on their own for the first time they're living on you know with uh, friends or whatever like they're all transitions and i think it's to maybe say help them look at how how are they using their you know how is their energy patterns changing you know i mean whereas before they would have cycled a lot more walked a lot more maybe now they're using public transport more they're using um uh, if they're privileged enough they might have a car or whatever so those type of things and it's talking about then about like okay so your energy like you know you can see they can see their own individual experience of energy use changing and i think that's sort of and then how those actions impacts then you know the kind of wider consequences but uh, you know and but it's also again i think that one of the things we kind of we have to be careful of as well is that we don't beat individuals over the head then by saying you know because you're engaged in this action uh, it's your fault you know whereas uh, and I, I, I keep coming back to it's this it's the system that needs to change not not just individual behaviors or practices you know i mean it's the system and people will change with that so i, I think that's Part of it. No, no, I, I, th- I think that's uh, really important is how much individual action can change things mm-hmm. compared to the system yeah. changing things. Yeah. Oh, no, I, it's, uh, it's definitely part of it, but I don't think it's the, I think the problem is that there's a tendency, and not, not, not amongst academics now, but it's, there's a tendency in a popular narrative then that that's the only thing that's discussed. There's no, like, you know, the, the systemic changes that are needed to help individuals change aren't discussed you know what i mean and then it becomes yes. a, a blame game and it's like well you know we told you what to do you know why can't you do it you know and then it's like on well <laughs> how can i when you know i'm locked into this pattern you know so, right right i have to have a car to get to my job yeah yeah basically. that's it exactly well you know okay then uh, like and, and that's a big discussion here you know that we uh, say that we do need a car uh, to get to work uh, say because we we're in ireland it's quite dispersed uh, especially in the mm-hmm. in the rural areas uh, or the peri-urban areas and it's kind of as all of those um it's because the public transport isn't there you know what i mean that that's that that's what's kind of impacting then that people need you know so people people use the technologies they they have to or that you know that, that they can get their hands on in order to complete the lifestyle that they want so uh you know if you can afford a car you get a car you know that type of thing whereas but then if a car becomes on a you know sort of more expensive and you have a, another form of transport public or whatever then you know people will change, you know, and I think that's kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, but it has to be accessible. Oh, like, absolutely. Like, yeah. like the bus or something has to yeah. uh, outweigh the car or it has to, it has to be lower or more encouraging yes. than, than a car. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and again, they're systemic rather than individual choices. You know what I mean? I think that's the, that'd be my, yeah. yeah. Uh, Rafni, uh, do you have anything else to add? Um, well, it, it's just a. It's been uh, thanks very much for the. Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 very much a. Um, uh, it's it's been a great discussion. I think I, I hope uh, was it. I hope we've uh, it was, uh, you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I think it's uh, you know it, it's um, it's been it's been very good. I think the. Um, the new, the Green Deal offers some exciting, uh, oh, yeah. you know. Um, uh, uh, opportunities. Uh, I don't know. How do you feel about it? Do you think it'll it will? Um, no, uh, no. I think it's it's really encouraging. I mean, essentially, it is activating the citizenship mm-hmm. uh, to to do to become more involved, yeah. and, and it's placing a lot of emphasis. And I and I kind of get this impression overall from the European Commission about engaging citizens more directly, mm-hmm. which then can tackle some of the more. I mean, living in Hungary, <laughs> we have yeah. right wing populism here, uh, yeah. and and which kind of uh, demonizes the EU 
and the EU institutions. And in a sense, I see the Green Deal as trying to engage more directly with the with the citizens. Yeah. Okay. So so this is how I thought about. It. Maybe it's the most not politically correct way, but yeah. but it was essentially we have the EU that funds um, some populist right wing governments like Poland, Hungary, with no rule of law provisions essentially now. Yeah. And so they build out their energy system. So they're building uh, or renewing coal fired power plants or making limited attempts, for example, in Poland to to sh- transition away from coal. That it is happening. Mm-hmm. Or in Hungary, um, maintaining coal as a as a important option in the energy system, mm-hmm. but at the same time, uh, then they fund like Horizon twenty twenty projects to understand what's the problem. Yeah. But <laughs> so so, I just maybe it's, it's a very simplified version of of giving all the the countries their money and then yeah. maybe not stipulating too much over how that's spent right yeah. and then we as social scientists or as scientists come in and, and have to figure out and tell the commission what the problem actually is right yeah, yeah. I, I i just think there has to be much more direct funding I know there's a lot of effort in Central Eastern Europe for mm-hmm. cities to receive money that doesn't come through the national government. So there has to really be some kind of uh, mechanism agency that is engaged directly with the citizens and, and bypasses the, the nation state yeah. or the national governments. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's that's been one of for uh, it's been one of the um, the kind of the really positive outcome of the European Union, I think, is that, you know, you do have opportunities for say local governments and to communicate and to you know to engage with each other and learn and i think uh, i suppose uh, as you say uh, you know the examples you give there i think tell the lie about the brexit you know mythologies that are kind of you know have kind of uh, sprung up in england you know i mean about the eu being this all-powerful all you know encompassing and all of that uh, whereas you know, I would you know, definitely see, you know, the, the, the huge positives that can, you know, that have come out of it. And I think, um, I mean, I mean, as as, as any developed economy, um, as you know, take the European Union as a whole, uh, I mean, we, we're we're on a better path. So let's hope we can kind of improve on that a bit more, I think. And um, yeah, you know, no, but yeah. I, I like how you bring up the, the local governments and, and Poland actually provides a, a, a very good example. They set up these kind of regional administrative units. Mm. And they were the ones that that got the money, and it, and it really fostered a professional, uh, these professional we could say development agencies. Yeah, it, they worked with local councils developing projects, and so it really, it, in a sense, I don't want to say it was it was non non political, but essentially it was non political yeah. and done on a professional basis. And I could just see from the research and the people I spoke to in Poland the benefit of this, yes. that, that it wasn't uh, so much corruption, right? Yeah. It was actually maybe projects were awarded based on their merit mm. rather than the political or economic connections that certain bidders have. Mm. Where, where in Hungary, it's simply all controlled by the central government. And let's not talk about how the money is distributed, basically. But I could see in, in Poland how this system worked. And now I think that in in the country there's some debate over what what the future system will be, but but the past system for the past funding cycle definitely was in place working, and and I think it's easy for national politicians just like the Brexit to demonize and put all the yeah. <laughs> economic ills, uh, social ills, everything that's wrong with the country on the EU, and and, and I think it's completely oh, yeah. completely wrong. It's a straw man so, argument, yeah. 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 Completely. And so I think the EU really has to find a way to fight uh, against this. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, then they should be 
much more perfect. I mean, I, <laughs> this is a bad topic for me because I'm in Eastern Europe and I, and I really see a lot of social protests, yeah. a lot of people asking the EU to step in to help or at least cut off money yeah. in Bulgaria, Poland, Hungary. And, and the EU just simply sends more and more money mm -hmm. uh, to, to these countries and to these governments that don't respect democratic norms. Yeah. But that's it. And then the energy sector, though, uh, it definitely... It definitely, uh, I would say, the funding for this demand side, mm -hmm. getting people out of energy poverty, rehabilitation of buildings, all this stuff. And really, this is where the EU money can be spent yeah. uh, best, rather than building new new power plants. No, I agree. I agree. It's uh, definitely, and it's, it's it's fascinating research. Actually, I'd, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to reading more about it as well. <laughs> Thank you for coming on today. No, so that, no, thanks very much. No, I've really enjoyed today, so I uh, appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast in iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn.